0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and we will begin this morning in verse 1. I hope and trust that uh, you have been encouraged today and blessed today as God's people have sung praises of the one true God. And I just think after being away for a week, what a great delight it is to be back with you and to come home. Um, it's of course a great delight to get away, not not from you all, just uh, away from the busyness and be on vacation. And uh, moreover, it is uh, a great comfort that uh, God, who's entrusted uh, this church's teaching ministry to me, I'm able to hand the baton over to a man who's incredibly faithful to God's word. And I'm so thankful for Josh Miller, and many of you perhaps don't know Josh as well as I do, and. Uh, uh, it is to your loss. He is a, an eminently godly man who is propelling me towards Christ and youth towards Christ and children towards Christ. And uh, we are very, very blessed to have him at this church. So, Yes, very thankful for him. I'm thankful for his word. I'm thankful that I stand before you today as a son of God redeemed by God's grace. Luke 7, verse 1, hear now the word of God. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, his centurion sent friends saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go and he goes and another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowds that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Our Father, we're so thankful for this time now that we can gather and sit under the authority of your word. We're so thankful that you would call us to do this today for we know that your word is powerful and that your word, Father, pierces our hearts, that your word is profitable and encouraging and chastising. And we want to come and not just repeat our weekly routine, but we are here out of desperation to hear our God through his word and by the power of his spirit. So will you not come now, Holy Spirit? Will you not come in great might and power that you might work in Hamilton Baptist Church for your great namesake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Your wish is my command. It's a saying that a servant may give to a master or perhaps a king the idea, of course, is that if, if you're under great authority and the one with authority has a simple wish, you who are under that authority might even understand that to be a command. Just say the word and I'll do it. Well, there's a story in the Old Testament that kind of, um, proves this point. It's the story of King David and he's leading an army against the Philistines and the Philistines had captured Bethlehem and, and David's army is outside of Bethlehem and the Philistines have occupied Bethlehem and, and this stalemate goes on for some time between the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines. And, and why the stalemate goes on, the Bible says David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem. Now, it's certainly an offhand remark. It's perhaps spoken out of frustration. It's certainly an absurd request. After all, there are thousands of enemy forces in Bethlehem at that time. And yet he was the king. And word spread through the armies of Israel that the king wants to drink from the well of Bethlehem. That word came to three warriors and David's wish was their command. The Bible says the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and brought it to David. I wonder what they must have felt when they gave this water from David's uh, hometown well, the the well he drank from as a boy. And David promptly received the water and then rather than drinking it, poured it all out on the ground. Uh, But he said it is a. It's a holy offering to the Lord. Dedicate this to Him and your sacrifice to Him. It's an interesting picture of the authority of a king over those who serve under Him. When we come to another story, I think that proves the same point, even of a much greater authority, that, that of course of King Jesus, and how we who follow Him, that we who are, belong to Him, who are His, should trust Him who has all authority in heaven and earth. The story begins in verse 1 when we read after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Of course, finishing the sayings is referring to the sermon on the plain that we spent the last five weeks considering as Jesus lays out for those who are now following him what it looks like to be in his kingdom. And he explains to them that if you belong to me, if you want to be my disciple, you want to be in the kingdom of God, this is how you're to treat one another, and specifically, this is how you're to treat those outside the kingdom. How you're to interact with those who might even oppose you. Well, you finished that sermon and he entered what is now his hometown of Capernaum. And we read in verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So enter into the story a Roman centurion. It's really going to be an interchange between Jesus and this man and this man's emissaries, his messengers. I just want to pause here and to note uh, what a Roman centurion is. And I think it's important for us to, to identify this because often Christianity is portrayed as a religion for women and children and perhaps weak men. But here is a uh, very real man, a very strong man. And I would suggest to you that this centurion is tougher than you are. And that I am. He wears a sword on his belt. He has gone to battle. He has faced men face to face fighting for life and death. He is strong. He is a leader. He commands a hundred men. Hence the name centurion. He would be the equivalent, perhaps, of a captain in our military today. And even more, he is a wealthy man. He even has a servant, as we see. And so we find here, at the beginning of the story, a strong, successful, powerful man looking for Jesus Christ. And it's looking for him, he's looking for him for a very particular reason. As we see in verse 2, he had a sick slave. In fact, he was so sick, he was near death. We also read that this slave was highly valued to him, that he loved this slave, which I trust will be unusual. Uh, Many times slaves are considered to be property, and, and if one dies, perhaps one might think, I'll just get another. But to this centurion, this servant, this slave, was a friend, a loved one, and he attended to him at his deathbed, perhaps watching the signs of, of death grabbing him and, and laying hold on him even stronger and stronger as the days go by. Perhaps he was listless. Perhaps he struggled to breathe. Perhaps the centurion felt the fever upon his servant's head and spoke to doctors on his behalf. I mention that because some of you have been at this place, haven't you? Some of you have been at the side of a dying loved one. Perhaps they were healed or perhaps they were not. But you understand what this man must have gone through watching one he loves die. I think this text, this passage, therefore, is particularly appropriate for you to consider this morning. I think the fact that you have gone through a situation like that perhaps gives you greater insight into what's going on in this centurion's heart. As he seeks Help For this man he loves. He's done everything he has. He's done all he could. And yet he has now heard about Jesus, as we see in verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. He has heard of Jesus. Many have heard about Jesus this time. Jesus, and by this point, in His ministry, in His Galilean ministry, we call it the Galilean springtime. It's going to be the beginning of His ministry, perhaps lasting as long as a year. And there are going to be hundreds of people following Him. In fact, I just want to remind you to look back in Luke chapter 16 and note verse 17. When the Bible says, "...and He came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great multitude of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And so Jesus' ministry is now international. People are traveling from all over the country, four days' journey from Judea and Jerusalem, and then even outside that country in Tyre and Sidon, coming to Jesus to listen to Him and to be healed by Him. And so Jesus' ministry is now growing and expanding and thousands are coming to Him. And this centurion himself has heard of Jesus and therefore he sends for help. Verse 3 says he sent the elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. Now we're not sure why he doesn't go, at least not at at this point in the text. Uh, Perhaps he he thought that he being a, a Gentile centurion, it might be inappropriate to ask a Jewish rabbi for assistance. And so he gathers the elders of the Jews. These might be religious leaders akin uh, to our elders and our church or they might be civic leaders perhaps the mayor and the city council or something of that sort regardless these are men of authority and he gathers them and says i need a favor from you guys i've heard about this man jesus one of your teachers and i need his help and so off they go they go to jesus and they go and i'm going to ask jesus to help this uh, centurion and his servant it's kind of interesting isn't it because now we have this interchange between uh, the centurion and jesus and remember what jesus just preached in the sermon on the mount he told us to love our enemies he said do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you and as soon as he finishes his sermon he comes down off the mountain and goes home and what is before him but a request from an enemy an occupier a foreign influence in the land of Israel. Some have said that this would be akin to an American Marine asking a Taliban cleric for help. We wonder how he would respond. Well, he will respond favorably. In fact, not only will he go, he will end up being amazed by this, his enemy. Amazed by his faith. So I don't know if you have any interest in amazing God today. Well, what must I do to bring amazement and marvel to heaven itself? Well, this man will show us. As we see, first of all, we ought not to trust in our own works and secondly, acknowledge our great need and thirdly, believe that Jesus has great power. And so I want to work through those principles with you, but I want to do so in a moment. Before we even dive into point number one, I just want to add a couple footnotes of observations I've made of this text that I think are important for us to kind of put in our in our minds somewhere and tuck it away. The, the first, I want you to notice that, that Jesus here is ministering to a Gentile. And, and Luke, of course, is a Gentile, as we've already seen, the, the, perhaps the only Gentile author of Scripture. And so he'll be very keen to point this out. And it's important to understand, up to this point, Jesus has primarily been ministering to Jews, but along comes a Gentile. And he doesn't turn his back upon him. He doesn't say, well, listen, I'm only here for this kind of people. No, Jesus has is, is come for Jew and Gentile. He's come for the rich and the poor. He's come for the powerful and the slaves. He loves all people. He is the Redeemer of all nations. There is one God. There is one name under which heaven, under heaven, which man may be saved. It is his name Jesus Christ. And he has come for all nations. This is why you and I must be faithful to continue to carry on this mission, not just to people like us, but people vastly different from us, just as this Jewish rabbi was ministering to a Roman occupier. The second little footnote, i just as a side, I want to put in your heart, is I want to note that this slave was not seeking Jesus, but his, his boss was, if you will, his, um, his friend was. That it's almost like the paralyzed man. Remember him from, I think it was Luke four or Luke five. And, and of course that man I trust was seeking Jesus, but his friends were helping him. And I just want to note the benefit of living in relationships with other people, living in relationships with other people who will seek God on your behalf. I think far too often in a very mobile land in which you and I live that we put way too little emphasis upon the community in which we belong. And I think we're very quick to move and to leave a community if perhaps other job opportunities arise. And I'm no way saying that we should not do that, but I am saying we should certainly consider what the church is to mean to us and the blessing that it is to live within that faith community. This is not my observation. It is one I learned from J.C. Ryle, who wrote in 1858, Often, far too often, a Christian parent will hastily place his son in a position where his soul can get no good for the sake of mere worldly advantage. Often, far too often, a Christian servant will seek a new place where religion is not valued for the sake of a little more wages. These things ought not to be. In all our moves, our first thought should be the interest of our souls. In all our settlements, our chief desire should be to be connected with godly people. In all our planning for ourselves and our children, one question should ever be uppermost in our minds. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Well, let's move on to the principles that we see here this morning. First of all, we see in an attempt to amaze Jesus. We ought to not trust in our works. Don't trust in your works. In verse 4, picking up the story we read, And when, he, when they came to Jesus, uh, they, uh, they pleaded with him earnestly. So the, interesting enough that the Jewish elders, they actually came to Jesus. And yet they not only came Jesus and requested, but they pleaded with Jesus. In fact, not only pleaded, but they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. I don't know if these men are used to running errands for the Roman centurion or the Roman occupiers, but here they are lobbying Jesus, persuading Jesus to come. And their argument as to why Jesus ought to do this is interesting. They don't lay before Jesus this servant's great need. They don't even mention the servant. But instead, they compel Jesus to come do this work as they lay before the centurion's great worth. Read on with me in verse 4. Saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He's worthy of this. He's worthy of this blessing. In fact, they go on to explain his worth in verse 5. They, they explain, for he loves our nation and he is the one who has built our synagogue. And so here's this man, an occupying force in this small Mediterranean country, and rather than being filled contempt with this post, he actually has a love for this land. And he loves them not simply in words, but in deeds, for he has built their their building, their church building, if you will. And we've already seen, by the way, that he has this tender love for his servant and 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 that he cares desperately for him. In fact, many people in the Bible will come to Jesus on behalf of another. They'll come on behalf of a friend, a son, a daughter. But there is one time in Scripture where a man will come to Jesus on behalf of a slave. And it is here. This centurion is evidently a a, a we all would consider him a good man. But is this a good argument as to why Jesus should help? Why, why should he help this man? Well, their line of thought is, well, he's, he's helped us. Or he's done a lot of good work for us. He's worthy of your blessing. I mean, look, look at all that he's done, Jesus. He's done this, he's done that, he's done this over here. If anybody, God should bless, it certainly should be this man. This is how religion works. Every religion in this world apart from mine and yours. The religion says do this and don't do that. Give and pray this many times a day or fulfill these pillars or keep the law. Do these things. And maybe at the end, you'll be right enough before God. And if you moreover do these things, then God should bless you. That there is a belief in this world that you merit God's power. You merit God's favor. This is what their argument is with Jesus. After all he has done for us and for you, you owe him Jesus. By the way, Jesus is living in Capernaum at this time. It's Peter's hometown and the hometown of many of the apostles. And I trust he's even preached. In fact, we know he has preached in that synagogue. And you can almost hear the argument. Like, you like preaching in the synagogue, Jesus? Well, this man built it. So you ought to come and to help him. This is how religious people think. If you sin, you incur debt to God. And of course, that's true. The Bible teaches that. But religion takes it farther and says a way to pay off your debt is to do these good, righteous acts. Be a good person, a moral person. Complete the religious rituals and that will pay the debt in which you have occurred to God. And if you're good enough, then you actually accumulate some credit with God. And God is now in your debt. God now owes you a good and easy life and blessings. I wonder if this is this your mindset? Do you think God owes you anything? W- one way to determine is, is when life does not go according to plan, when there's suffering or hardship, difficulty or trial. Some will get angry with God. They'll they'll get upset with him. And the reason is, is because they believe that God should do different for them. They believe that because of what they have done and the years of service in the church and so forth, that God should treat me differently. Now, they may not verbalize that. But when you become angry with God based upon how life is going, you're thinking you deserve better than what you are getting. And so I want to be clear this morning that you you don't deserve better. You don't. I don't care how hard your life is. And I don't want to minimize the trouble and trials in which some of you are going through. But I will say, will say to you on the authority of God's word, you don't deserve any better than what you're encountering. In fact, you deserve worse. The Bible tells us that God owes us one thing. And that's death. The wages of sin is death. What he owes us is hell. Anything beyond hell, anything better than hell... It's not deserved by you, no matter how good and righteous you are. He should have said, they should have come to Jesus and and said to him, Will you be gracious to this man? Will you give mercy to this man? Will you come and show your great power and help this man in great need? You see, you'll never get God's grace until you see your need for God's grace. And you'll never see your need for God's grace if you trust in your own moral righteousness. In fact, you should probably acknowledge your need. Which is clearly what this man does as we secondly consider that we have to acknowledge our great need. So this is the argument that they've laid before Jesus. Interestingly, despite how flawed this argument is, Jesus still comes with them. Verse 6, And Jesus went with them. And as he approaches the house... Uh, a second group of emissaries r- rush from the house to encounter Jesus before he gets to the house. Read on in verse 6. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And so the first message is, will you please come? Right. And then there's a the second message, stop, come no farther, D- don't come. And so we're left wondering why in the world why is this second group coming? Because the first group accomplished their mission. Jesus is on his way. He's coming to heal this man, and now a second group has come and say, "No, no, no! Don't, don't stop! I'm not worthy, in fact, to have you come into my house," as he says uh, in in verse six. He says, "Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof." In fact, read on, verse seven. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I'm not even worthy to be with you. So, what's happened? Why come and now stop? Well, we're not sure. But I wonder, I'm going to speculate here. I wonder if these elders headed back home and said, well, uh, Mr. Centurion, we got good news. He's coming. Uh, in fact, uh, we, we, told him, he, we told him how worthy you are. And we, we told him all the great things that you did. And we, said he, we told him that, that y- you are worthy for him to do this. And I wonder if the centurion began to think, I'm sorry, you told him what? You told him I'm worthy? And off he sends in a second group. This time, not the Jewish elders, but his personal friends. And they have a totally different message, don't they? I'm not worthy is their message. He's not worthy. Exact opposite of what Jesus, uh, what the Jews had said. You notice that it's the same word used in verse 4. He's worthy to have you done for this, do this to him. Verse 6, I'm not worthy to even have you come under my roof, let alone do this. Now, remember, this is a good man, right? I mean, he loves his slave. He loves Israel. He's generous. Could you imagine? We built this building, what, about 10, 15 years ago? Can you imagine if someone from our community walked up and, and said, hey, I, I hear you guys building a building. You know, how much does that costs?" And we told him, and he says, and he just wrote a check. And he said, here you go. And you say, wait a second, you're not even a Christian. And he says, yeah, I know, but, but I love you guys, and, and I want to help you. Right? You would think, this is an incredibly generous man. This is a a good man. He built this synagogue. And by the way, if you happen to be in Capernaum today, 2,000 years later, you can go to that synagogue. Now the building is no longer there, but the foundation exists 2,000 years later. I mean, he built it well. This is a righteous man by all accounts, and everyone thinks he deserves whatever help that we can give him, except him. He doesn't. He doesn't see his moral goodness. He sees his need instead. The elders say, you should help this man because he deserves it. He is worthy to have you do what he asks. And then a second message comes. Don't help. I don't, I don't deserve it, rather. I'm not worthy of it. I'm not worthy to have you in my home. I'm not even worthy to come to you. It reminds me of John the Baptist, who was, by the way, a great man, said of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to tie, untie his shoe. I'm not worthy. And this centurion understands that he is not worthy for Jesus to have this done to him. But what's fascinating to me is, is not simply what he says, but what he doesn't say. Because he doesn't send these men with a message, I'm not worthy, therefore don't do this. Right? He, he doesn't say, I'm not, I realize I'm not worthy, and therefore I withdraw my request. I mean, why should you why should you help someone like me? Why should you listen to someone like me? He he doesn't say that at all. Because if he said that, he would be agreeing with the elders, except just coming to a different conclusion about his worth. He would agree, that is, that you need to have some moral virtue in order for God to work in your life. But what what he does say? So he doesn't say, I'm not worthy, therefore don't come. Nor does he say, I'm worthy, therefore do what I ask. But he says, I'm not worthy. I don't even deserve to be in the same home as you. But please do what I ask. You know what he's asking for? Grace. May I have grace, please. May my servant have mercy, please. And Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, is going to say, finally finally someone gets it finally there's a man that understands and he is amazed you see god hears the cry of the humble he resists from resists the proud. he turns his back he closes his ears to those who are proud and we therefore need to turn from any dependence on our own moral virtue our own worth and instead feel our great need feel our great corruption in us, you must feel unworthy of God and His blessing. You must understand your need. Just like Nathan Cole did in 1741 when he was converted, listening to the great preacher George Whitfield, saying, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me in order to be saved, we need to see our great need, which is why I believe that many people come to faith in the midst of trouble and trial. You notice the centurion doesn't call upon Jesus until disaster is looming, until it's kind of the last moment. He doesn't send for Jesus until nothing else can be done. And we're all kind of like that, I think. We, we don't We don't look for Jesus. We don't ask the big questions often. You know, why am I here? And what's the purpose in this life? And will anything outlast me until something generally goes wrong in our life and we begin to think about these things and think beyond us? This happened to uh, the great Christian author Leo Tolstoy, who had a great crisis at age 50 in his life. And he writes, The question brought me to the edge of the abyss when I was 50 years old was, Why should I live? Is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by the inevitably approaching death? Is there anything real or imperishable that will come out of my life at all? And, and he goes on and writes, what amazed me as he began to think about these questions is, is that he had failed to ask these questions before. He had lived 50 years and never asked these kind of questions. But that's, I don't find that that amazing. Because who likes to ask those questions? I mean, who likes to ask, is there any purpose in life? And will something last after me? Those are scary questions. Right? We would much rather watch TV, I think. Right? Or, or get busy doing something or go to work. I think C.S. Lewis understood that when he wrote that great book, uh, Screwtape Letters. And Screwtape, the senior devil is teaching the junior devil how to tempt humans. And, and uh, he comes to the point in their correspondence where he talks about if one of the clients... Starts to think, you know, maybe Jesus is who he says he is. and Maybe the Bible is true. And maybe I need to be saved by faith in Jesus. And Screwtape writes, saying, for heaven's sake, don't argue with him. Don't get his reason going. Instead, get him busy in life. The hustle, the bustle, the paper boys, and the passing buses. See, often the only time that we begin to ask questions like this is when life gets interrupted and often by something that's gone wrong. As Tim Keller has put it, if there is a God and we are built for Him, then the vague emptiness we feel when things are good will become unignorable when things go bad. But the bad times don't create the need. They just reveal it. And the reason I want to pause here is that I I think some of you have perhaps witness to people and perhaps faithfully and you see no uh, desire for jesus and i want you to continue on even if you see no fruit because quite often the seeds that we sow in good times will only bear fruit when trouble and trial come upon those people's lives and then they begin to think about these big questions and they already have the answers put in their heart by you And so be faithful. Continue to proclaim Christ to those who are resistant to it. And for others, perhaps maybe even the reason you're here today is that you are facing trouble and trial. You are in the midst of difficulty and hardship. And quite frankly, not to minimize the pain that you encounter, it may be the best thing in the world for you. Because it may get you to realize your need is far greater than you realize your need is is far more than just getting through this difficulty in your life. That what you truly need is God's grace. And maybe God in the midst of these trials and these difficulties will help you realize that you are unworthy of Him and of His favor. And And yet, even being unworthy of God does not lead us to walk away from Him with our head cast down, but it leads us to call out to Him for help and grace. It's when we stop parading our moral virtue before God, and and we realize that that who we are, the corruption that we are, and we will call out to Him. It's only when we recognize our need that we will call out for grace. Just as this man does. An incredible faith. In fact, is a faith that very much marvels Jesus, as we see, thirdly and lastly, that we should believe that Jesus has great p- power. Jesus has great power. Look in, uh, again in verse six, and the the words that his friends bring to Jesus: "Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed." So you notice two things about this this centurion. The first of all, he says, I'm not worthy, which we just considered his humility, we might call it. And the second thing is his declaration that Jesus is powerful, right? All you have to do is just say the word. And so he has this humility married to this incredible faith. And we need both. We need to be humble in order to know our need, but we need to know where to turn when we recognize our need. Therefore, we need faith, right? If you're sick, you need to recognize you're sick, but you also need to know what doctor can heal you. And this man clearly has his humility and his faith in the Lord. And so we just considered his humility. Think about his faith now as he says to him at the end of verse 7. All you have to do is just say the word. And your word is a command. Your word will accomplish what, what you desire it to do. You have this great power with you. And this man understands this because he has an understanding of authority. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 and he says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. The centurion says to Jesus, I'm in charge. I, I know what it's like to give commands and people obey. And the reason I do is because I am under authority. Right? They're not so much obeying me, but they're obeying me because I've been invested with authority. Rome has given me authority. I'm not acting as an individual. I'm acting with a full weight of Rome behind me. And he turns to Jesus and says, you've been given authority too, haven't you? You have this relationship with God, and God has given you this authority. You are acting with a higher authority. Therefore... You, all you have to do is give the command. You don't even need to come. You don't even know what he looks like or where he lies or where my house is. You just have to say the word. And this faith amazes Christ. In fact, he's astonished by it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So he's clearly marveled by it. The question then is what's so amazing of this, of this man? Many people have pointed out it's amazing in light of who he was. After all, this man is probably one of the least likely people to believe in Jesus I mean, I think Jesus is perhaps pointing this out. He says, even in in Israel, even among the Jews, I have not seen faith like this. Remember, this man is a Gentile. He's not raised in the shadow of the synagogue or fed the truth of Scripture. He was not given the covenant and he had no hope of the Messiah. He's a centurion. He's a military-minded, self-reliant man. He is wealthy and powerful, and he is an occupier. Make no mistake, Rome was a brutal military tyranny occupying Israel by force. And yet he had this powerful faith in this Jewish peasant. I think this reminds us that no matter how distant one looks to be from God, no one is beyond God's redeeming power. There is no no one that is too far for the arm of God to reach And to bring into salvation. And so be encouraged, my brothers and sisters. Be encouraged to bear witness to Christ, even to those who seem far, far away from Him. Because you are not relying upon their heart or your ability, but upon a God who saves and does so powerfully. And I think this, Jesus is pointing out, it's amazing in light of who He was. But even more than that, I think it's amazing in light of what He believed. Now, He clearly believed that Jesus had authority over disease. Right? He says, soldiers obey me, disease obeys you. Right? And he recognizes something about Jesus. He says, I understand I have great authority, but I, I can't command sickness. But I know it's not beyond you. Uh, you. You speak and creation seems to obey you. You just give the command. So he recognizes Jesus' authority to heal diseases. But others have already recognized that, haven't they? I mean, so much that the leper will risk his own life by pushing through the crowd. Or the friends will recognize it so much that they will vandalize a home and tear a hole through the roof. And so what's unique about this man's faith? Well, it's not simply that he believes that Jesus has authority over disease, but he believes that Jesus can exercise his authority everywhere. That Jesus is not limited to where he is. Right? You don't have to be in my house to give use your power. It's not alakazam. The power is not in your hand. It's not in your look. It's not in the hem of your garment. It is just in who you are. Just say the word and it will be accomplished. And so this man believes that Jesus works through him without regard to location. He recognized that Jesus has been invested with this incredible authority that no one up to this point has been able to come to grasp with. That who Jesus is and the authority in which he has. He sees Jesus as a mighty and powerful individual far more than, than all who have been around him have been able to recognize. Some people have a view of Jesus, but it's much too small. Some people see Jesus as a helper, some see Jesus as a friend, some see Jesus as a counselor. I was listening to NPR yesterday morning, and one of the Republican presidential candidates was uh, being interviewed. And 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 this man was being asked about his faith, and he says, well, yeah, I, I like the Bible, but I don't look to the Bible for my policies. And 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 the interviewer pushed him a little bit and says, well, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, you know... Uh, There's a lot of thou shall nots in the Bible, and and I don't pay any attention to those. But I like the thou shalls. I I like to love your neighbor and love your enemy, he said. And and these are the things I try to live by. And see, this man has a view of Jesus, doesn't he? He has a belief in Jesus to some degree, but his belief in Jesus is very, very small. He doesn't understand Jesus as a king. He doesn't understand Jesus as a judge. He doesn't understand Jesus as the creator of all things and the ruler of all creation. He doesn't understand Jesus as a savior. Many people have a view of Jesus, but it's far too small. The centurions understand Jesus is massive. There's a story of a, a man named Doctor Robert Wilson who was a professor of Hebrew at Princeton Seminary in the early 20th century, and a brilliant man. In fact, he not only knew Hebrew, he knew 40 other languages, and uh, he he had a great and massive love for God. And when he would uh, men would graduate from his seminary and they would go off and become pastors and they'd come back and preach at Princeton uh, Chapel, he would always like to go see. Uh, his students and listened to his students preach. And one day, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Barnhouse uh, came, um, and, and Barnhouse preached a sermon. And his professor, his old professor, Dr. Wilson, went up to him afterwards, and he said to Barnhouse, I'm glad you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. And so Barnhouse was a little bit confused, and he asked him to explain. He said, well, some men have a little God. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of Scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands. It stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. And by the way, he did mightily bless barnhouse's ministry because god loves big godders he loves people who have this strong and massive faith in him and understand the great authority that he has this is a faith that pleases jesus this is a faith according to verse 9 that he marvels at in fact i did a word study in in preparing for this message on this this word marvel it's interesting It it occurs all the time throughout the gospels and it's almost always of people marveling at jesus and they marveled at his wisdom, and they marveled at his power, and they marveled at his preaching, and they mar- marveled at who he chose to love. But there are only two occasions in the Bible in which Jesus is said to have marveled. And so what is it that Jesus marvels at? What is it that he finds amazing? What is it, if I could put it this way, colloquially, what is it that we can do where God says, wow, I didn't see that coming? Of course, he did see it coming, but it marvels him. Well, it's the One place is here, as we see. He marvels at the centurion's humble and confident faith. The only other place is in Mark chapter 6 and verse 6. Jesus returns to Nazareth, and he marvels once again. The Bible says he marveled because of their unbelief. You see, nothing saddens the Lord more than people who refuse to trust him, especially those who are well acquainted with him. And I think nothing gladdens the Lord more than one who has a low view of their own worth and amazing trust in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. And I think some of you here marvel Jesus. I do. I think some of you um, bring great joy to heaven because of your powerful trust in Him. That you live by faith. I think He, for some of you, He is astonished at your faith that glorifies Him. Jesus rejoices in them. And some here, I believe, marvel God in a totally different way. And though you hear him speak to you week by week, you refuse to trust him. You refuse to bow your knee to him. And he sits in heaven thinking, what more must I do? What, what more? What, how much more grace should I demonstrate? How much more power should I show? move you to surrender your life to me and he marvels at the hardness of hearts of those who hear the preaching of god's word week by week and yet refuse to bow their knee to him now i'm not in any way saying that we should not that that doubts are somehow illegitimate please don't hear that this is not a place where we will ever say to you you just have to believe and put your doubts aside No, we want to talk about doubts. We want to talk about skeptics' questions. We want to wrestle with these things. I don't believe in blind faith. I don't believe the Bible teaches it. I believe in a reasoned faith, and I will never call you to blindness in your faith. But there comes to a point where we have to fight beyond the doubts, fight to trust, and even ask God to help us to believe in him. And this man clearly has done this and he has this great and powerful faith in Jesus. He has his strong faith in Jesus, and Jesus is very pleased with it. He marvels at it. And so we should look to for God to strengthen our faith and seek to have this mighty and powerful faith that this man has. And yet, I, I don't I don't want to stop there because Though the strength, I just want to back up for a minute because yes, Jesus is marveling at the strength of his faith, but you know what's more important than the strength of one's faith? It is the object of one's faith. Because it is better to have a weak faith in the right one than a strong faith in the wrong one. In fact, this man comes to Jesus, and it's interesting because he says to him, I'm a man under authority, and the implication is, Jesus, you are a man under authority, right? And he says, uh, in other words, I have no authority in of myself. I just have Caesar's authority, and that's why people obey me. And he says, Jesus, you're just like me. You have God's authority, and that's why disease obeys you. And that's good, but it's not quite right because Jesus has authority in himself. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so this man understands something about Jesus, but but not everything about Jesus. See, the the most important thing, even though he's missing truths about Jesus, is that he he still trusts in him. He still believes in him. And see, the the most important thing is that no matter how strong our faith is, the faith has to be in the right thing. It reminds me of the the man who has the the diseased son, the, the demonized son, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't know what to do. But I can't do anything. In fact, but if, if you can heal him, will you please heal him? And Jesus says to him, I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse me? If I can? What do you mean, if I can? And the man cries out to Jesus, I believe, but I'm struggling. Will you help my unbelief? And you know, Jesus doesn't turn the man and say, Listen, buddy, I would like to help your son. But you got some things you need to figure out. And so why don't you go back home and you work through the evidence. And when you truly believe in me, believe in me, then you come back to me and then I may be inclined to help. No, friends, he does not do that. This man with weak, faltering faith, Jesus is pleased to work in his life because it is not his moral virtue or the strength of his faith that warrants God's grace and blessing. God is gracious even to those who have a weak faith. And I, I pause here because we live in a culture that teaches the exact opposite thing. It is not the object of our faith that's important in America. It is the strength of your faith. In fact, we don't even care what you believe in. Just as you believe it with all your heart. Right? And if you believe with all your heart, whether, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a unicorn in the sky. As long as you believe it with all you have, it's okay. And we don't even get into the realm of actually uh, evaluating the, what people actually believe. And this is ludicrous to me because I'll tell you, Hitler believed with all his heart, and so did Stalin and Mao, and they breathed in the wrong things. The object of our faith is far more important than the strength of our faith. I like the illustration that Tim Keller explains. That two men are, are climbing a side of a mountain, and they, they fall off, and they land upon a ledge there. And there are, seem to be two ways off this ledge. There's a rocky outcrop on one side and a rocky outcrop on the other side. And the first man says, well, I'm looking at this this ledge over here, this rocky outcrop, and I know this will hold us. We have to go this way. And the other man says, you know, I'm not so sure. I, I, think, it, I think this is the way to go, but I, I'll be honest, I'm afraid. I don't, I don't know what's going to hold us. And so the first man walks off onto his ledge, and it, it fails, and he plummets to his Death and, and the other man walks out full of fear in his heart and weakness of faith and walks onto the other ledge and it holds him. Now, who is saved? The man with strong faith? No. It's the man who believed in the right rock. It's the, the, the strength of the perfection of your faith it doesn't matter. It's the, the, the direction of your faith. It is the object of your faith. And so even when we have doubts, We have to place our faith in the right thing. We even sometimes sing about it, just as I am though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fighting and fears within, without. But, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. In fact, how much faith does this man need to get his servant healed? Just enough to call to Jesus. As you know, verse 10 And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. He's healed. And by the way, there's no record of Jesus even saying the word. Remember he says, say the word and it'll be done. We don't have any record of Jesus saying the word. I think he just thinks the thought. He just wills it. And they go back home, these sober-minded men in broad daylight, and they find this man on death's door totally healed. Can you imagine what it would be like to be him? Right? All of a sudden the fever is gone. And the breath returns. And the energy is is back in your body and you feel like getting up and serving and working and dancing and singing. You see, this man's faith was well-founded. That Jesus, yes, has authority over disease and over distance. J.C. Ryle even wrote, A greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without seeing the sufferer, without the touch of the hand or look of the eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks and the sick man is cured. He commands and the disease departs. Which I think is incredibly good news for you and I because Jesus has gone home to heaven. So He's a far way away in many ways. And yet He still can work here, can't He? He can still bless here. He can still save here. He doesn't need to come to your house. Right? Jesus still hears you. Jesus still rejoices in faith. Jesus still answers prayers. And He still has delight in those who trust in Him. My question for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, do you trust your Lord? Do you trust in Him? No matter your trouble or difficulty and hardship, no matter the uncertainty that you face, do you trust Him as you follow Him? I mean, just, just consider what He's done so far in Luke's Gospel. I mean, the leper has been cleansed. The demonized have been freed. The paralyzed man is rising up and taking his bed home. The dying man is restored to life. The reason these stories are in the Bible is to be evidence to you and invites to you to trust in Christ in the midst of your hardship. In the midst of your difficulty. He wants you to trust in Him. That He can meet your needs. He can comfort you in your grief. He can give you hope for a future simply by saying a word. He wants you to rest in that trust. Even when things aren't working out the way you think they ought to work out. Even when He is not answering your prayers the way you want them answered. That trust includes a glad submission to the authority of our King. In fact, I think the difficult times in our life serve us. They ought to serve us as, they, as we begin to realize that Jesus in hardship is even a greater joy and treasure than we ever imagined. In fact, note verse 9 one more time. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel I have found such faith. I find that word found interesting to me. It's almost as if he's looking for it, searching for people who will trust in him. I wonder if he'll find that here. Will he find that in you? Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This is simply not a story about trusting Jesus in difficulty. It's about a story, I believe, of trusting Jesus to save. In fact, I will tell you this is not a story about healing. The healing is just kind of there at the end just to kind of end the story. But this is a story about faith. And I believe a faith that leads to salvation is a story of a man who despairs of his own righteousness, his unworthiness before God. It's a man trusting in Christ and his authority. The Bible tells us that we're not good. And we have corruption in us. We have a sinful nature. And in light of that, and in light of our rebellion to God, he sent his son into this world, that his son might live a perfect life. His son would go to a Roman cross and die there upon that cross, not because he was bad, but because I am and you are, bearing the sin of mankind upon him, taking the wrath of God that is deserved for me and for you, and three days later rose from the dead and is ascended to heaven and is coming back again. And the Bible tells us is that what determines where you spend your eternity is not what you do or how you live, but who you believe in. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you wrestled with your own sin and in desperation called out to Him, surrendering your life to Him? You may ask, well, how can, how can I believe? I've never seen Him. never heard Him. Well, it's interesting to me that this centurion never saw him or heard him either all he had done according to verse 3 is heard about him and yet he believed he had been considering Jesus he had been thinking about all that he's heard that Jesus has done and how he deals with people his truth and his compassion he's looking at his claims and he comes to this marvelous faith I've never met Jesus either he's never been to my house I've never seen him heal or watch or listen to him teach. And yet I believe in him based upon the witness of other people. If you struggle in faith, I would encourage you to, to read the Gospels. Read the, the evidence. Read the witness. Sit down in the month of August and just read all four Gospels through. And look at who he is and look at how he deals with people and, and, and look at his power and look at how, how he's at one time tough and tender at the, at the other time. And consider that. You know, someone has said, if God would give me an irrefutable argument for His existence, then I would believe. Others have responded, what if rather than an irrefutable argument for the existence of God, He gave you an irrefutable person? Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you would examine His life The sum total of Jesus would compel us to believe that He is the Son of God. In fact, one last thing to note as we end our time this morning, again in verse 9 it's interesting to me that he marvels at him, and then the Bible says, and turning to the crowds that followed him. It's almost as if the camera pulls back and reminds us, oh, by the way, there are hundreds of people with Jesus. And rather than thinking these thoughts in his own heart, he turns to the crowd and says to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What is he doing? Well, I think he is inviting those people who follow him to trust in Him as this centurion has. He's inviting all those who follow Him to believe in Him. I wonder if He's inviting you to do the same today. I wonder if He's turning to you even this very moment by the power of the Spirit and saying to you, do you have such faith? May God awaken that faith in your heart. May God bring you to an understanding of who Christ is that you might be saved by Him. Our Father, we're thankful for this morning and this time to consider Your Word. We praise You for the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, and we praise You that He has come not just to heal, but He has come to save. We praise You that He is not looking for the gifted and the talented, but He is looking for those who would rather despair of their own worth and lean upon Him. We help my brothers and sisters, and myself included, to grow in our faith in Jesus as we walk in this world and face the trials and troubles that it brings. He is worthy of our trust. Will you help us overcome the anxiety and fear that an uncertain future brings for there is no uncertainty to our God who rules in heaven. And Father, we especially pray for our friend here this morning. Perhaps I've been sitting in this pew that he or she sits in for weeks, if not months, and years. Maybe everyone thinks that they're a Christian, but they know in their heart that their faith is not in you. Will you not in your eternal kindness to them and for your great glory cause them to surrender their life to you even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.